From KUT News and the Texas Tribune, this is The Ticket. We demand our liberty. But this election is not just about what laws we're going to pass. Americans have come back from some pretty tough economic times. We need to stop limiting kids in poor neighborhoods. I declare to you today as a candidate for president of the United States. I'm Jay Root. And I'm Ben Philpott. This week on the show, we break down the campaign announcement speech of neurosurgeon turned conservative firebrand Ben Carson during a little segment we call Stump Interrupted. And he's back. Former Texas Governor Rick Perry will announce his second attempt at the GOP nomination. So we'll go over what he needs to do differently this time around with his 2012 campaign communications director turned, uh, I guess, co-chair of the Freedom and Opportunity Super PAC supporting Rick Perry, and that'll be Ray Sullivan. And on the straight ticket, here in Texas, we've been watching Perry do his best to transform from oops to viable candidate. I'll break down the big differences of Perry 2.0. But first, Jay, we got a tweet this week from, uh, let's see here, at LewisFur67Z, based on our Carly Fiorino episode, saying that he liked it. uh, But his quote was, do AAA candidates deserve the same analysis and airtime as the majors? Uh, You know, it's a good question. Uh, Not necessarily for Ben Carson, whose poll numbers are actually in the top five at the moment of GOP candidates, but Fiorina isn't. She's out of the top 10. Uh, Lindsey Graham is coming, uh, has recently announced he's out of the top 10. Uh, Even Rick Perry just barely at the moment in the top 10. So, you know, as we move forward, what do you think, where do we kind of draw the line on who we're going to talk about? Well, first of all, I think it's fun to listen to these speeches, actually. (laughs) Um, And look, it's part of, if if anyone who's spending their time and money to get into the ring um, and to get into this process and to subject themselves to it and to get on the ballot, they have a nominal chance. And I think we have a, a responsibility, frankly, to take a look at them. They could be VP nominees uh, later. They could be cabinet members. They, they, you know, as we often have seen, these candidates come back around. And, you know, Carly Fiorina, actually, speaking of her, she's moving up and uh, her uh, po- positive ratings are, are really skyrocketing right now. She's getting a pretty good reception in Iowa. I think she's she could be a factor. She's got a pretty good shtick with that, you know, really going after Hillary Clinton pretty hard. Also, we're going to have kind of a, uh, you know, natural selection moment within this campaign. The Fox News debate, the first debate of this uh, primary season, is only going to let in the top 10. The CNN poll the next week also top 10 with, you know, a little side segment with the B team uh, also having a debate. You know, we're going to we're not going to be uh, talking about 30 different candidates come September. We're going to be talking about those top candidates. So, you know, until then, we've got time to fill and uh, and we've got candidates aplenty. So, you know, let's have at it. Yeah, we're doing this once a week. So that's right. We got time. <laughs> It's time once again to dissect a candidate's campaign on Stump Interrupted. Today, we dive into the launch speech of Republican Ben Carson. Carson launched in Detroit, Michigan, using music to get the crowd on its feet before he even took the stage. Uh, He then started laying out his vision for America, and here's the first of the three clips that we're going to dissect. Some years later, my mother discovered that he was a bigamist, had another family, and of course that occasioned the divorce, and 
you know, she only had a third grade education and uh, consequently we were thrown into a situation of dire poverty. We moved in with her older sister and brother-in-law in Boston. Typical tenement, large multifamily dwelling, boarded up windows and doors, sirens, gangs, murders. Both of our older cousins, who we adored, were killed. I remember when our favorite drug dealer was killed. You know, there's a lot packed into this soundbite. His father was a bigamist, had another family, and, you know, his mother had a third grade education. They lived in dire poverty, and not just, you know, regular old po- poverty, like grinding poverty. So he, and he grew up in a violent situation. We, we've heard a lot about uh, people who have had, you know, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Well, you know, this, is, this guy became a neurosurgeon. That's what I call a compelling biography. That's how those early settlers were able to move from one sea to the other sea across a rugged and hostile terrain. If a farmer got injured, everybody else harvested his crops. If somebody got killed, everybody else pitched in to take care of their families. That's who we are. We Americans, we take care of each other. Now, this part of Carson's speech is talking about ending what he considers is the cradle-to-grave welfare state. Uh, it's a take on the compassionate conservatism that President George W. Bush talked about using you know, local charities, local churches, and community groups instead of government programs to help people improve their situation. But what's also interesting is this is an example of what politicians from all parts of the political spectrum uh, love to do, which is talk about how great America used to be specifically pointing to a period of time that they think was better, uh, but maybe without considering what some of the problems actually were for other people at that same time. Uh, You know, a Texas example of this was from uh, then-Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison when she kicked off her unsuccessful run for governor against Rick Perry. Uh, She said that she wanted to make the state's education system as good as it was when she was in school, which, of course, overlooks the fact that when she was in school, Schools were still segregated. You know, the the media, the press, is the only business in America that is protected by our Constitution. You have to ask yourself the question, why were they the only ones protected? It was because our founders envisioned a press that was on the side of the people, not a press that was on the side of the Democrats or the Republicans. And this is a direct appeal to media. You guys have an almost sacred position in a true democracy. Please don't abuse it. You know, this was a little bit of a different take on, you know, beating up the media elite. I mean, he actually was like appealing to us to do the right thing. And I found it fascinating, probably because I'm a reporter and I've, I've, uh, I've never thought about the fact that uh, I happen to have stumbled into the one line of business that's mentioned in the United States Constitution, and we have this protection, although, you know, lately seeing what's happened to the media, protection is maybe not the word that I would use. But, you know, I like that his sort of outside-the-box thinking and, and statements. He has sort of this running stream-of-consciousness kind of approach. Um, And I think that sort of makes him a compelling speaker and and, and a sought-after speaker. It was interesting. Throughout this speech, he very quickly would shift gears into different uh, topics, um, and it kept the speech going. I thought at times it was a little 
you know, maybe meandering is a, a too harsh of a word, but um, it was definitely not a, uh, it, it was definitely very free flowing and, uh, uh, but he, he, you know, he pushed all the buttons, right? He hit the emotional points. He hit the political points. Uh, you know, he got around to everything he wanted to say. Right. So he's sort of like Ted Cruz where, you know, he goes out without a, without a script, without, uh, and, and he doesn't have a microphone. He's got the thing strapped on it, the microphone strapped on his head there where he can uh, walk around with hands free. Uh, but unlike Cruz, it doesn't come off as like over, very prepared. It's, it's, he's, He's just thinking about a lot of it, and and it, I'm sure it can get meandering, but it, it it's pretty effective. So now, as we always end these here on Stump Interrupted, we're going to play two more cuts. One, uh, starting off here, why we think he could win the nomination. It's eminently possible for slick politicians and biased media to convince you that everything is wonderful when your eyes tell you something different. And I'm saying to people around this nation right now stop being loyal to a party or to a man and use your brain to think for yourself that is really the key to us as a nation becoming successful again i think we all know that ben carson has the remotest of chances uh, of becoming president. He's never served in public office. He says some pretty far out stuff, but he does have a chance to break through the noise, I think, and to become a player, if not an actual contender. And here is where he makes the case for it by separating himself from slick politicians. And while a lot of slick politicians say they're definitely not one of those creatures, Carson actually is not. And that is his opening here. It'll be really interesting to see how he handles himself in the debate, which, you know, at the moment he's in the top 10, he's in the top five, actually. Uh, It'll be really interesting to see how, not just how he acts, but how the, uh, his opponents on the stage uh, 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 treat him, I guess is one way to put it, you know, what, what they go after. Um, But yeah, he's, he's got that great Republican base uh, calling card of, I'm not the establishment. And, uh, you know, I'm closer to one of you than these guys up in Washington. Having listened to him, I think that he's going to end up landing some nice gig, you know, nice TV gig after this. I mean, wasn't he a commentator before? Was he not a Fox News commentator? I know that Fox definitely picked him up after he uh, had that moment at the prayer breakfast where uh, he said that Obamacare was the worst thing in the United States since slavery, which is a very nice transition into why we think he might uh, certainly lose this nomination. And I got to tell you something, I'm not politically correct, and I'm probably never, I'm probably never going to be politically correct, because I'm not a politician. I don't want to be a politician, because... Politicians do what is politically expedient. And I want to do what's right. We have to think about that once again in our country. Yeah, Jay and I both agree on this one as an example of why he'll lose. Uh, Carson has gained fame and lots of media attention from conservative media outlets, uh, from bloggers to Fox News, uh, over his attacks of the Obama administration. Uh, He said that liberals could turn the country into Nazi Germany. He's called Obamacare the worst thing since slavery. He's even called the president a psychopath, or at least said that he's acting like a psychopath. Um, You know, those statements have given Carson a nice bump 
at the start of his campaign. But uh, as you and I have talked about, you know, off mic, they're bound to come back and haunt him uh, if he actually does begin to move up in the polls. Yeah, that's what, you know, it's, it becomes a game of whack-a-mole when people start coming up. When you start rising, that's when the candidates start attacking. They usually don't uh, punch down, they punch up. And that's it for this week's Stump Interrupted. Next week, we're going to take a little break from analyzing what the different presidential candidates are saying and instead talk to some real voters in Iowa and South Carolina about what they listen for in a stump speech. You're listening to The Ticket from KUT News and the Texas Tribune. I'm Ben Philpot, And I'm Jay Root. Former Texas Governor Rick Perry has announced a second run for president this week. He spent the last several months working to rehabilitate his political image after a poor showing in the 2012 race. So what's his plan this time around? Ray Sullivan was there when the campaign hit rough waters in 2012 as campaign communications director. And he'll get the question we've been asking most people that we talked to early in the campaign season. Uh, what are you doing now? I am the co-chair, along with another former longtime Perry colleague, of the Opportunity and Freedom PAC, which is the super PAC that has been set up to support Governor Perry and his efforts. Why work, um, and for those who don't know, although I guess if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do, PACs, super PACs cannot coordinate with a presidential campaign. We can raise and spend unlimited amounts of money from a variety of sources, but we cannot coordinate with the official uh, campaign of the governor, of Governor Perry. So our job really is to raise and spend money in support of uh, Rick Perry and his record and his vision for the future. But we have to do that independently of the campaign. That's one of the reasons why they have chosen to make two former Perry chiefs of staff the co-chair of this group. We're we're folks who know Perry and his record really well and therefore, frankly, don't really have to coordinate uh, not that we can, but we don't have to coordinate with the campaign. Yeah, you're not coordinating, but you have a good idea about what he might like to do. That's exactly right. Ray, I remember uh, in 2012 in North Charleston, South Carolina, mm-hmm. when Rick Perry withdrew from the from the race. And right after he did, um, you came up and, and told some of us, you know, he yeah. might take another shot at this in four years. Here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, what... What do you remember about that? Was he, did he, when he pulled out, was he ready to just go again uh, right away? I'll give you the slightly longer version, Jay, but we spent uh, that evening talking about his exit strategy, whether or not to endorse another candidate, and then how to tee this thing up. Right before we went out that morning, though, to make the announcement, I, I turned to him and said, look, I would like to go out and say that you may well run for governor of Texas again and may well run for president again. Is that okay with you? And he said, absolutely. And uh, I remember vividly saying at that time, and it's still true, and it's still um, good history, almost all the Republican nominees of the last 50, 75 years have been on their second or third attempt at president. Our voters, Republican voters, like to know, touch, feel, be comfortable with their nominees. And uh, I thought that it would be uh, both a good idea, a good spin at the time, but also a real option that Rick Perry try his hand again at, at either a governor's race or in this case, a presidential campaign. So what's the response been then? I guess it's, you know, this is kind of par for the course for Republican primary to have a second time candidates running through. What kind of reaction have you seen to Perry uh, uh, running the second time? 
the f- coverage that I've seen from Iowa is that he is really connecting with those voters. As Jay knows, having, as you guys know, has spending so much time there. Iowa voters take their jobs really seriously. They like to see, touch, feel their candidates, ask tough questions, and feel like those campaigns and candidates are spending ample time and effort. We did not have the time to do that in 2011. The governor's, Governor Perry is making up for that, learned from that experience, and spending a whole lot of time in those early states now. You hear from some people that, you know, Rick Perry did sort of have an awful run last time and that maybe it was so awful because of the oops moment, because of some of the gaffes that that happened, um, that he's not going to get a second chance. Do you see any danger of that? What I've seen so far is that he is, in fact, getting that second chance, particularly in, in Iowa. I think, look, what our polling data showed on the eve of the Iowa caucuses in January of 2012 was the voters of Iowa and Republican voters liked Rick Perry. They liked what he stood for. They liked his record. They liked his plans. They didn't feel like he was ready. What what he showed them in in the debate performances and elsewhere in our campaign was that he had not invested the time and effort to be prepared. Uh, he has learned from that. He is showing... I think uh, very strongly that he is taking his role from a policy development standpoint, campaign building, spending the time on the ground in Iowa really seriously. And I do think that the voters, particularly in places like Iowa, who are not overly swayed by sort of cynical political analysis or even national media, uh, are appreciating the investment of time and effort he's made and are listening intently to his record and his message. What kind of message do? What kind of message are you at the PAC thinking of uh, putting forward for Perry in this campaign? Obviously, it will it will develop over time. I think first and foremost is to help reintroduce Rick Perry and his record. I think a lot of folks didn't know in 2011, 2012, because when he entered the race, he really entered as a front runner about his humble. Uh, rural agricultural roots. He grew up in a house that didn't have plumbing, (laughs) indoor plumbing, until he was five or six years old. He is uh, someone who grew up in in small-town America with agricultural roots and really worked his way up uh, thanks to Texas A&M, thanks to the U.S. military, and developed that core conservative Texas philosophy that has proven to be really successful here and I think Republican voters around the country are looking for that sort of record. You know, a lot of people do talk about the oops moment, but uh, as I re- remember it, when he talked about in-state tuition and really embraced uh, in-state tuition for undocumented immigrants um, who graduate from high school, um, that was sort of when it's, it, it, it began going downhill. Um, he has not moved away from that as far as I know. Don't, don't you think that's going to be something that's going to hurt him? I think that in the wake of the big Romney loss, the sort of unexpected, shockingly sized loss in uh, 2012, and the, the fact that the party has not done well with Hispanic voters, and that those Hispanic voters really should be uh, conservative or open to a Republican philosophy. I think a lot of folks have looked at how do we do better? How do Republicans do better with Hispanic voters? The governor sticking to his guns on issues of both border security as well as job creation, 
as well as if you have kids in the state of Texas who did well in school, who graduated from Texas high schools, they should pay in-state tuition like every other Texas high school student who, who applies and gets into a school. Uh, I, I do think the, the governor did not explain himself well. In that particular instance, Jay, I think he, he had gotten a little upset with Rick Santorum's hollering and hooping up from the corner seats and, and overreacted. Unfortunately, his delivery was directly into the camera and the voters of, of the Republican Party thought that he was talking to them when, in fact, I think he was talking to Rick Santorum. But I do think it's notable that the governor has not moved away from that position and that the Texas legislature had an opportunity to repeal that measure this session and didn't which speaks volumes in my mind as well. Well, it seems like, you know, we had uh, Steve Munisteri on here a few episodes back, and the um, success that Texas has had in terms of Hispanic outreach, it does seem like that's a template that nationally, uh, that nationally Republicans would certainly want to use, and so maybe a Rick Perry candidacy can be that, uh, uh, you know, can bring that template to a national level. I know that in the last campaign, uh, on that very first debate in uh, at the Reagan Library, mm-hmm. they had a couple of political scientists from uh, you know various California colleges there, and they said, "Look, you know, yeah, is is a Republican going to win California? Probably not. But if it is, uh, Governor Perry, uh, and at that point, as you said, he was kind of coming in as a front runner. Um, if it is Governor Perry, that's a completely different conversation than places like California have had in the past. And do you, do you feel like?" Again, it's, you know, the base of the Republican Party at times may not be very happy with some of those stances, but do you feel like this is a uh, this is where he can kind of come in and show the need for uh, a broader approach? Bottom line for all voters, but especially Hispanic voters, bringing them into uh, the Republican fold in November is opportunity and and job creation. And again, Perry's got, I think, the best record of, of anyone out there. Uh, Texas has... I think struck the right balance of uh, providing great opportunity to uh, Hispanic uh, Texans, uh, great uh, assimilation and and community engagement across the board. This is really at the heart and soul of of the foundation of Texas and the the uh, the cultural uh, alignment between those who came here and and the. Uh, uh, Hispanic Tejanos who were here uh, at the beginning and have, have been hugely important to the state. Um, the state has not um, demonized and, and uh, offended the way some other states have. Um, I would remind you that in 2001, when that measure passed, the governor vetoed a bill that would have allowed illegal immigrants to get driver's licenses. But when it came to educating kids who went to Texas public schools who graduated from Texas public schools, he felt like all those graduates should have equal access if they're legitimate Texas residents to uh, get in-state tuition. And he did not do the greatest job in the world of explaining that in 2011. Uh, I think the party has learned from that. I think the media has learned from that. And I know that Governor Perry has learned to, uh, to uh, better explain the entirety of his record and, and his vision along those lines. Do you uh, anticipate being very active in Texas because, you know, the calendar is, is so different this year? Will your super PAC be, you know, really trying to uh, 
uh, you know, win the, win the primary here, I guess, uh, on uh, March 1st. The primary goal for the Super PAC is to raise and spend money in support of the campaign heading into uh, ahead of election days. And obviously, we'll start our efforts in, a, a, and roll out our efforts as the, the electoral uh, calendar uh, unfolds. So I think you'll see early activities in, in Iowa and New Hampshire, and, uh, and then we'll take it from there. I, I do think that you know, unlike the 2011 campaign when the governor entered as a strong front runner, um, he is going to need to build up and to to earn that support. He'll need to do relatively well in Iowa and, and be much more prepared to run a more um, grinded out, uh, a little bit more shoestring of a campaign than we did last time. Uh, but I think that's good. I think that has proven um, to be a a successful model for previous candidates and really helps folks be super prepared going into the general election. In the very first debate, the Fox News debate, there will only be the top 10 candidates allowed in. Uh, As of taping of this interview, Governor Perry is number 10. Now, granted, number uh, nine is Donald Trump. We don't know if he will actually run or not. But is is that anything that, uh, and you just talked about kind of building and, mm-hmm. and, and grinding it out, is that an immediate concern or is that a let's stay the course and we'll be fine? It is certainly a concern. I'm not sure there's much more you can do about it, though, as a campaign other than just um, take care of your business and do the best you can. Um, the candidates have gotten bumps from their announcements, so we'll see how much of a bump Perry gets in the coming days. Uh, but he has spent a lot of time and effort uh, himself, one-on-one and in small groups with voters. And what we've seen in Iowa is that tends to pay off in the long run. Ray Sullivan is co-chair of the Freedom and Opportunity Super PAC. Thanks for coming in and talking with us today. My pleasure. Finally, here's the straight ticket. The field for the GOP presidential nomination is already crowded, and into that crowded field now goes Rick Perry. This, of course, will be his second attempt. The first one didn't end well. But over the last several months, the former Texas governor and his team have been trying to fix those first-time mistakes and build what you might call Perry 2.0. But what does it take to rebuild a man? Well, I guess it depends on how badly he was damaged. The third agency of government, yeah. I would I would do away with the education, uh, the uh, <laughs> commerce, and let's see, I can't, the third one I can't, sorry, <laughs> oops. A man barely alive, gentlemen, we can rebuild him, better, stronger, faster. I think we can all agree it's going to take more than $6 million to repair the damage Perry's image suffered in his first run for president. But instead of a bionic arm and legs, Perry 2.0 needs a campaign upgrade, starting with a simple improvement. Put in the work before making the run. The most important thing I learned was the preparation that is required to be considered for the most powerful position in the world, is a very long and arduous task. So you could say upgrade number one is a new brain, so to speak. 
Perry spent more than two years traveling across the country, from think tank to institute to policy expert, trying to soak up as much knowledge as he can on domestic and foreign policy. I did not do that in 2011 and 2012. And I I paid a, I I will suggest I paid a a pretty substantive price for that. Upgrade number two, Perry 2.0 will have to give voters a new impression. Because if he's going to have a more successful run this time, he can't just not make mistakes. He needs voters to give him a second chance, especially voters in early primary states. Dante Scala is a political science professor at the University of New Hampshire. New Hampshire Republicans are happy to vote a second time for candidates who have built a strong relationship with them. But, says Scala, Perry's just not a great fit for New Hampshire. The state's GOP tends to vote for more moderate, establishment Republicans at primary time. And even if he put in the time to make that second impression, Scala says the crowded GOP field may hurt Perry as voters look for new options. We don't want a candidate who's banged up, scuffed up, bent around the edges. We'd we'd like a freshly minted candidate this time around. But Perry 2.0 might do better in Iowa. That state's Republican caucus goers are generally more conservative than New Hampshire. So what's upgrade number three to give Perry a chance there? Actually, it's not an upgrade. It's a reboot, like when Perry talks about border security. If Washington's not going to do its duty uh, to secure the Texas and Mexico border, Texas will. Drake University political scientist Dennis Goldford has seen Perry use that line in Iowa. Both times I've seen him do that here in Iowa among Iowa Republicans, that's met with rapturous enthusiasm, strong applause, hoots and hollers. Now, there's a little cleanup needed on immigration, too, for Perry. He had some trouble with immigration hardliners for not backing off a bill he signed into law that lets some students who came to the U.S. illegally when they were young children pay in-state tuition at state colleges and universities. He hasn't changed his mind on the law, but has said that's a decision that should be left up to each individual state. Beyond that, Goldford says Perry has an immigration policy that Iowa conservatives can get behind. Somebody like Perry, who will make the argument about border security, uh, attracts a lot of attention, if not support yet, for a strong stand in that regard. Oh, and there's one other thing that's in Perry's favor as he makes a second attempt at the nomination. Goldford says Perry's oops moment at that debate in 2011, as bad as it was, it is something he can recover from. Well, the oops moment was not being wrong on a particular issue. It was a a matter of general competence. In other words, oops was embarrassing. It showed Perry wasn't ready for prime time. But it didn't make voters write him off as a candidate they didn't agree with. And that means the door is still open, even if just slightly, for Perry to slip back in. Okay, so one final upgrade, and I bet you know what it is. While the previous upgrades have been on campaign substance and style, this one is easy to spot before he even starts his campaign speech. Stephen Colbert certainly noticed. After two years of agonizing reappraisal, the governor has completely reinvented himself with a pair of glasses. (laughs) He can't lose now. I mean, those make him look smarter, more serious, And we're back to oops, which highlights the key obstacle to this reconstruction project. The $6 million man needed new legs because of a horrific crash. Rick Perry's trauma was self-inflicted. 
that could make it much harder to overcome, no matter how many upgrades he makes. I don't want to leave before my time is done. Don't want to stick around when my race is run. I don't want to go before they call my dance. Don't want to die asking for another chance. That's it this week from The Ticket. Remember, we're on iTunes. Just search The Ticket 2016. Subscribe and, hey, give us a review. We're also on SoundCloud. And you can find us on texastribune.org and kut.org. Also, give us a call and ask a question. We may use your question on a future episode. Our number, 512-943-2016. Make sure you tell us your name when you call. And you can also email us. It's theticket2016 at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at theticket2016. The Ticket is a co-production of KUT News and the Texas Tribune. The show was mixed by me and edited by Matt Largy. Our studio engineer is David Alvarez. And our theme music is by Ben Root. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.